Thank you, Pastor Scott, and good morning again to you all on this uh, uh, less than beautiful day, but it is good to have you here with us this morning. Better today than next Sunday, so certainly praying for a good Sunday for our trunk or treat, which uh, is always a great uh, outreach to our community. Uh, before I begin uh, diving into Scripture, I just want to say a couple things. Um, first, I want to uh, remind you that this coming up weekend, uh, next weekend, not only do we have Trunk or Treat, but if you've been thinking about what might it mean to become a member at ZPC, uh, we have our Inquirers weekend, so it begins on Friday night at, uh, at um, the Deck household, and uh, where you can come over, we have dinner, and we get to tell you a little bit more, or just get to know each other a little bit better, so it's uh, uh, just a great night. And then the next day, uh, here from 9 a.m. to noon on Saturday, you get to hear a little bit more about ZPC about what it means to be uh, a member of this church, about the, uh, the things that we can offer and the things that you can offer us. It's this great kind of uh, opportunity just to hear a little bit more about who we are as a congregation. So I would invite you, uh, go online uh, if you are not a member and, and consider perhaps uh, coming and being a part of that weekend. Also, um, the midweek video, uh, hopefully you saw that, but if not, uh, I wanted to let you all know that starting next weekend um, at the 9.30 and 11 o'clock services, the session has voted um, to no longer require masks. Um, if you would still like to wear a mask, obviously um, that is... Um, Encourage, love, no problem whatsoever, but you don't have to. Uh, but we are continuing to mandate masks at the 8 o'clock um, so that we can have that space for those who are, much, who are more comfortable with wearing a mask and being with those who are wearing masks. Uh, as a reminder as well, our middle school students and younger will also be uh, uh, required to continue to wear a mask for the time being, as will those who are working uh, with them. If you have any other questions uh, or concerns about that, please talk to me, Pastor Scott, or any one of our active Elders, And then finally, I'm going to ask Becky Woods if she would come up here. We have been looking for uh, a director of our uh, first through fourth grade and a communications coordinator. And um, we have offered that job. And this week uh, she has accepted, right, uh, Becky Woods. So I want to introduce you to Becky Woods. And... Uh, Uh, many of you probably already know Becky. She is currently our worship coordinator, um, but she has decided that she is going to um, um, take this next step, and so we are excited. Becky has taught in public schools. She's taught in private Christian schools. Uh, she's worked with churches for a long time, and perhaps most importantly, she is the daughter of a Presbyterian pastor. <laughs> that was really all I needed to see, and... Um, so thank you to the team uh, who interviewed you. They're very excited for you, Becky. My own kids, two kids, are excited to have you. I'm excited to have you. Um, I have four kids. The two that will be in your class, sorry. And, um, and our covenant children will learn much from you. So thank you so much. And we'll be praying for you in the days ahead. Let's welcome Becky again to that role. Now, Becky will be able to fill that role even better and more fully, once we have someone to do her current job as worship coordinator. So if you are someone or know someone who you think might want a part-time job, 20 hours a week, uh, you get to come in here on Sundays and be with us, um, we would, I would invite you to, uh, to think about that. Because as soon as we have someone who can do that role, uh, then Becky will fully be able to be uh, the director of first through fourth grade. All right, sisters and brothers, we're continuing to make our way through the New Testament, and this week we are going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. So here is what Paul writes. 
You yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully mistreated at Philippi, as you know, we had courage in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in spite of great opposition. For our appeal does not spring from deceit or impure motives or trickery, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the message of the gospel, even so we speak not to please mortals, but to please God who tests our hearts. As you know, and as God is our witness, we never came with words of flattery or with a pretext for greed, nor did we seek praise from mortals, whether from you or from others, though we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nurse tenderly caring for her own children. So deeply do we care for you that we are determined to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. You remember our labor and toil, brothers and sisters. We work night and day so that we might not burden any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how pure, upright, and blameless our conduct was toward you believers. As you know, we dealt with each one of you like a father with his children, urging and encouraging you and pleading that you lead a life worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we do pray that you would be with us even now. As we come to you on this somewhat gloomy day, we are reminded that our hope, our peace, our joy is not found in the weather around us or in what circumstance we might find ourselves, but instead is found in you as the light of the world. I pray, Lord, that you would be with us over these next few minutes. That the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So if you were here a few weeks ago, um, you, will, uh, you may recall I mentioned how uh, during this season there have been a lot of pastors uh, who have been either wanting to or have actually left uh, the pastoral ministry. In fact, I was reading an article uh, a little while back that was talking uh, to one particular pastor who had left and he was trying to find another job. And he, so he said to the reporter, you know, you might be surprised just how, non, how non-transferable pastor skills actually are. Um, I love that quote and I wasn't surprised. Um, we really can't do much else, quite frankly. And so I, I was thinking about that. And, and, and the reality, of course, is that, that, that being a pastor is not, you know, special. It, it isn't uh, any better than anything else. Um, but it is, as Eugene Peterson uh, says, it is a unique call. And when I was growing up, and uh, my wife, uh, uh, for her, it was the same case. Uh, when, when you're in the church, oftentimes, when we were growing up, there were kind of levels of spirituality. And based off of that, you could choose your vocation. Uh, if you were super spiritual, uh, then you would become a missionary to some distant land. If you were um, um, above average spiritual, um, then you probably could become a pastor. And if you were just regular spiritual, you got a regular job. And that was just kind of how, at least as a kid, that's always kind of how it felt when we were growing up. And 
Even as a kid, I always thought that was slightly annoying, and I didn't really like it that much, and because I didn't want to be a pastor, I didn't want to be a missionary, so I thought, well, I guess I just, I'm just not worth that much. And, but one of the great things that the church has done, it's not gotten this, it still has a lot of room to grow, is to help all the congregation to see that actually each of you has a particular calling, and each of your callings can be holy without question. So whether you are a gardener, or whether you're an attorney, or whether you're a doctor, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a construction worker, whether you're an accountant, it really doesn't matter that all of those things can actually be incredibly glorifying to God, that all of those things are a calling to which you have been called. Now, that said, one of the things that research has continued to show, and that anecdotally I have certainly uh, seen as well, is that there is a decreasing amount of people who want to become pastors. Now, there's lots of reasons for that, and we don't really need to go into all of those right now, if you ever want to talk about it, because it's just something that intrigues you. I'm sure Scott would love to chat with you about all of those things. And, but while there are lots of reasons, I want to suggest this morning that that should actually be somewhat concerning to us. Uh, not surprisingly, our public schools, and this is completely understandable, uh, but they don't tend to, when you meet with a guidance counselor, it doesn't tend to be one of the top of the list, right? I mean, there's engineer, there's, you know, there's doctor, there's lots of other, you know, great vocations, but there's not a lot of, of guidance counselors at public schools that will say, hey, you know what you should really be? You should be a pastor. And, and that's okay. That doesn't actually bother me that much. But what it does mean is that we then we have a calling as a church, ZPC and the Church Universal, to always be looking for people who we think might be able to be pastors. Again, I'm going to keep saying this, not because it's any better, not because it's any more special, but because it is a unique calling. And as churches, if we want to grow and we want the kingdom to grow, then a part of that is to make sure that we have pastors who can lead those churches. And I bring all of that up this morning because as I was looking over this particular text of 1 Thessalonians 2, I realized that in, I wanted to talk this morning about what it means to be a pastor as a way of trying to encourage us to begin thinking about maybe the ways in which either we or we can encourage others to think about this call as pastor. Now, I have to admit, I have some real reservations about talking about this. I haven't done this. I, I don't think I've ever talked about this in 16 years. And on Wednesday, when we were meeting as a worship team, I said, I don't know, I want to talk about what it means to be a pastor, but I have great concerns. Primarily this, as soon as I say, I want to talk about being a pastor, 99.98% of you think to yourselves, why in the world did we even come today? Right? I mean, you're like, this has nothing to do with me, right? And I mean, you always want to preach something that has something to do with people. That tends to be helpful. So let me say this. One, I'm still going to do it anyway. Two, I want, I want to encourage you to know that while we love to have young people who want to be pastors, um, that there's a lot of mid-career folks who end up becoming pastors. In my uh, seminary class, we had almost a dozen attorneys who decided that they wanted to become pastors, and of course, lots of other professions as well. So it could be that, you know, midway through, maybe that's a, a change you want to make. Thirdly, I want to say this, that almost every pastor that I know of, actually every pastor that I know of, when you ask him or her, why did you become a pastor? They will tell you 
that at least one person, typically more than that, at some point along their journey, encouraged them to discern whether or not God might be calling them to be a pastor. Here's what I know, because I just saw a video. My wife just showed me a video this week of something in her profession where they're trying to get more and more people to become what it is that she does. Every profession is going to do that. And we as a church need to be a place where we are encouraging people to discern what it means to be a pastor. But what does it mean to be a pastor? A part of the reason why people don't encourage people to become a pastor is because, as I oftentimes get asked, what in the world do you do all week? So I'm not going to go through every detail of that because I know I would certainly lose you. But I did decide that this morning, this is what I'm going to talk about. And I decided that the way to do it would be to respond like in an email or a letter that I had received from somebody, maybe from you, that said, hey, I'm thinking about being a pastor. I'm wondering if God might be calling me in this direction. Can you tell me what it's like to be a pastor? And I will do that through this lens because I feel like it lends itself well of second or of first Thessalonians 2. Dear you. So you want to know if you should become a pastor, what it's like to be a pastor, why I became a pastor, and how does it feel to be called a reverend? I always thought that was a strange word, by the way, to attach to someone, and quite honestly, something that even after a decade and a half, I still haven't gotten used to and don't even like all that much. Well, I cannot tell you whether or not you should become a pastor. The truth is that all of our calls to the pastorate are somewhat unique. I would have loved if my call would have been like that of Paul. Remember Paul, who was bowled over by a bright light, went blind, and received a whole new name when he decided to follow Jesus and to become a pastor I would think that an earth-shattering event like that would be not only significant in that moment, but perhaps even more so in the future. Because in those times when I have struggled as a pastor, when I didn't know how to answer someone's gut-wrenching question about God or couldn't understand what a difficult scripture passage meant, not to mention then having to stand up in front of a bunch of people and talk about that difficult scripture for 30 minutes or... Just in my own personal life, when struggling with faith and wrestling with God left me thinking, how can I help others when I have so many of my own questions? In those moments, I wish that I had had an earth-shattering, light-blinding, name-changing, voice-from-God kind of call to be a pastor then I could always go back to that moment and know that I had heard God correctly. But I did not. The truth is that my own personal call came in so many small ways over the years, maybe even over the decades, that I honestly only noticed it when I finally cast my eyes backwards. My love of playing Bible sword drills and memorizing scripture. Parents who took me to church all the time. A love of talking. Or as my school teachers might have described it, a passion for interrupting their classrooms. An intern at my church during my high school years who told me that I had some gifts as a leader and it might be nice if I actually started trying to use them sometime. 
A college semester that I spent in Washington, D.C. that helped me both to realize that no, God was not calling me to be an attorney, but that there might be something to thinking deeply about Scripture and how it can shape a community. The truth is this, even after a year of seminary, I still thought there was no way that God would punish me by making me a pastor. And yet, it was in the middle of an internship at a small Presbyterian church in Charleston, West Virginia, an internship I was unhappily forced to do by my seminary, where one night in the darkness, laying down in a spider-infested bedroom in a dank apartment that I received the call. No bright lights or booming voices, no name change, just a sense of some invisible hand, if you will, rousing me from my weariness and showing me the possibility of what could be, what God could do through a church that was centered on Jesus Christ and on loving God and loving neighbor. And as hard as it is even now to say what God might do through someone like me, someone who didn't and still doesn't have all the answers and who didn't feel naturally like he was a pastor. But yet some 20 years after that night, that is exactly what I am. But what does it actually mean to be a pastor? What's it like? Well, perhaps as a lens to see about life as a pastor, we can look at St. Paul. I'm not sure we always think about Paul being a pastor, quite frankly, a prophet maybe, a church starter, an entrepreneur, an apostle. But Paul, the pastor, doesn't normally roll off the tongue. But that's exactly what we see in 1 Thessalonians Two, what many have described as a passage that reveals his profound heart as a pastor. So what does Paul tell us? Well, he begins with what I would suggest is bad news. Which is, to put it bluntly, but I want to be honest with you, there is a good amount of heartbreak that comes from being a pastor. One of the fascinating things about a ministry like this that you may not even fully realize until you just get out there and do it is just how public it is. Paul was often in front of groups of people teaching and preaching and leading, which in many ways is a part of the great joy of being a pastor. But what Paul experienced and what all pastors experience, though most of us to a lesser degree than Paul, is that when you publicly acknowledge what you believe, especially if that belief deals with God and with things close to people's heart, and if it is somewhat controversial, you will experience people who not only disagree with your idea, but they disagree with you as a person. For Paul, they so disliked him that they beat him and publicly shamed him. We see this again and again throughout Acts in this letter to the churches. Now, keep reading, please. Let me be clear. I don't want to be melodramatic. I don't personally know any pastor who has borne the brunt of a club or a whip from one of their congregation members. Unlike in Paul's world, and in many parts of the world today even, we in America, we serve in a place where we are relatively safe physically. And for that, I and we should be incredibly thankful. There is, however, an unmistakable mental limp that most pastors walk with after having pastored a few years. They may hide it well, 
But the truth is that after standing up front and interpreting Scripture week after week and saying things that for right or wrong might be offensive or for some people not offensive enough, there is a bit of a flinch or nervous tick that you might catch a glimpse of if you look at a pastor closely enough. Sometimes it's a direct confrontation where you are told lovingly or unlovingly that you are clearly wrong. But more often than not, it is something that you hear through the grapevine. Or, as is often the case, you experience it by the faces you no longer see on Sunday mornings or the faces you once knew who now look away from you when you are out and about. And the reason for this infliction of pain are many. And Thessalonians, maybe you heard it, Paul's being accused of being greedy, of flattering people with his words, of having impure motives. To be sure, every time a pastor gets up to talk about the importance of generosity, he or she always runs the risk of saying, of someone saying, I knew it. All you care about is the money. But there are other accusations that one has to hear. You're too political. You're not political enough. You're not biblical enough. We like trade communion. We like intinction. You're too loud. You're not loud enough. Okay, I've never actually heard that one said to me. But I keep waiting. At a previous church that I served, I had an elder march out of a session meeting because he didn't like the way I did communion. I had a woman who wrote a lengthy diatribe about how I was supposed to marry her daughter and not Megan, my wife, to whom I had just gotten engaged. That was a great time. I've had people leave a congregation I served because I was too liberal. I've had people leave a church because I was too conservative. Someone left because I didn't learn his name quickly enough after starting at the church. Someone else who left because she thought I was putting way too much pressure on her just to join the church. And I hardly even remember talking to her. My point is that no matter who you are, no matter how you lead and preach, when you are up front and in public as you will have to be, you will be criticized and it will hurt. It may hurt less the longer you pastor, but it will still hurt. Of course, what is really frustrating about all those accusations is that there are many times when they are absolutely right. And in those moments, when you realize that you have made a mistake, you will have to do what Paul says in so many of his letters, which is to be humble and to receive it well. The truth is, just in preaching alone over my 16 years of being a pastor, I have said almost 2 million words. And you can rest assured that there are a decent amount of those that I wish I could massage or that I could retrieve altogether. When, as Paul says, you have been entrusted with the message of the gospel, we should do so with much trepidation and humility, knowing we will not always get it right. And those are moments when we as pastors remember most profoundly that we are not Jesus, but that we are pointing to Jesus as feeble as those attempts may often be. And that is something that we and the congregations in which we serve will have to frequently be reminded of. Now, you might be wondering at this point, if you are still reading, why I would bring up all of this pain at all. Am I really that bad of a salesman? Don't I want people to become pastors? Why even bring any of this 
up. I do so for three reasons. First, because as any commentator has pointed out, and as you can see, when you read these words from Paul, Paul never hid his pain. You can hear it in almost every jot and tittle on the page. Secondly, I bring it up because the limp is real. And to tell you otherwise would be to mislead you so that when you feel that first pang, you might foolishly believe it reveals that you have chosen the wrong calling or that you have misheard God. And thirdly, I bring it up because I want you to realize that it is this pain that you will feel because you have allowed yourself to be vulnerable. And I want you to know what a beautiful thing that is and how important that is to ministry. You see, the temptation will be for you to take this pain, these accusations, and to begin to say fewer and safer things from behind the pulpit. The temptation will be for you to begin to be less yourself or less relational to those to whom you are called to shepherd. And that temptation, though understandable, will never allow you to be the pastor God would want you to be. Because being a pastor is a beautiful, vulnerable relationship between you and the people to whom God has called you to serve. Can't you feel this relational intimacy and vulnerability of being a pastor in the image that Paul gives? He says that when he was with the Thessalonian church, he was as gentle as a nurse tenderly caring for her own children. See, this is what makes the pastorate so incredibly rich. Because like a mother caring for her vulnerable child, you get to be invited into vulnerable places and whisper words of hope and love in the midst of darkness and fear. My first realization of this invitation was when I was a student chaplain in Kansas City at a hospital. And the very first night that I was on call, I was all alone. I found myself included in a circle, a group of people wailing as they stood around the bedside of their teenage son, grandson, and brother who had been shot and now lay dying on that bed. And after I joined that circle, they all turned and looked at me with eyes that said, why and what now and is there any And though I was scared and lost about what I should say or do, I also realized that I had been invited into that holy space in order to be a part of this intimate and gut-wrenching experience. And despite my inability to answer their questions, I could pray with them and for them. I could remind them that they were not alone. I could let them know that death did not have the last word. And in that moment, I realized that this was no ordinary calling. And though I was still externally and very much internally just Jerry and had not yet been ordained as being official, I began to learn that night what it meant to be invited 
invited into a vulnerable place because I was beginning to learn what it meant to carry the title of pastor. And over these years, I have been invited into many of these sacred times and places. I have been called in the middle of the night to come and weep alongside a mother whose alcoholic son had died far too young. I've been invited to gently touch a premature child. And pray with quiet desperation for him to be well. I've been asked to whisper words of hope to a family whose son has committed suicide. And I had the immense privilege to pray with a woman whose memory had been almost completely erased by dementia. But she could still mumble those words alongside of me. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I have gotten to look into hundreds, if not thousands of people's eyes and remind them that they are loved by God, that their sins have been forgiven. I have been able to hold countless numbers of babies, none dropped yet, and shower the waters of baptism and grace over them. And I have been able to preside over countless funerals of the elderly where I reminded those who had gathered that just as we have been baptized into a death like his, surely we will be baptized into a resurrection like Christ's. I've watched as people who clearly wanted everyone to know that they wanted nothing to do with God slowly begin to soften as they've experienced the love and embrace of Christian community. I've seen people who have finally felt the forgiveness of God and the weight that was released from their shoulders. And I've seen people who have finally been able to forgive their parent or spouse or ex-spouse and the way in which that has brought them new life. I, as a pastor, have been invited time and time again into those sacred moments, not because of who I am, but because of what it means to be a pastor, to shepherd, to love like a mother nursing her own children. But I also have gotten to stand up behind the pulpit or typically beside it or all around it and to proclaim the good news of the gospel. It's been suggested that the reason why uh, Paul and Thessalonians, he doesn't just bring up the mother nursing her own children. He also brings up, it's like being a father with his children, is because fathers in that time were understood to be the parent who gave moral instructions. And so we have this balance between nurturing and instruction. And from the pulpit, the pastor gets to remind the congregation each and every Sunday who they are as children of God all week. Those in the congregation are told that they are what they can do or what they can produce or what they can monetize or how good they are or how successful they can become. And each week, the pastor gets the opportunity to yell out, hogwash. You have worth and purpose and are loved because you have been created by an almighty and loving God. 
Every week, the pastor gets to challenge the congregation to remember that they are called to a new way of life that is countercultural, that is not grounded in fear or anxiety or hatred, but in the peace and the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. We get to remind them of the call of the church to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. And there are few moments that are as rich and meaningful as standing behind the pulpit and seeing in the eyes of those who are gathered that these words of love and instruction, grace and guidance are making their way into their hearts. In those times when you can feel the spirit in a sanctuary at work is an unspeakable grace. But I have also discovered Unspeakable grace in times when my words from behind the pulpit are clearly falling flat and short. But somehow, the Spirit of God still uses those seemingly dead words to enliven someone. It is a powerful reminder that it is God who makes his word come alive. But we as pastors get to participate in it. Here's the thing. As we nurture and instruct, embrace and guide, weep and laugh, get ready because something happens. It's so subtle that honestly it is something that you don't even notice until some event or interaction or conversation unveils its truth. In fact, I think it's what Paul's getting at when as someone has said he almost seems surprised by what happens with the Thessalonians. Paul says this, so deeply do we care for you that we are determined to share with you not only the gospel, but our own selves because you have become dear to us. You see, that's the thing about pastoring that sneaks up on you. You interact to with and you preach to and you talk with and you listen and you laugh and you cry and you challenge and you hurt and you get hurt by and you wrestle with and you, hu- and you hug. And at some point you discover just how dear the church has become to you and how much this vocation, this pastorate has become not something you do, but someone you are. And how this church is no longer someone to whom you preach, but is someone that you preach with, not someone you listen to, but someone with whom you listen for the voice of God. Not someone whose pain you feel, but someone whose pain you help carry, and with great frequency, the ones who help carry your pain as well. I can't say when it starts. I can't explain it. I can't describe it. I can only say it is in that moment that you realize that pastor is no longer a job. It is you. And in those moments, as Paul says so well, you have shared not only the gospel, but you have shared your very life. I know. There are lots of amazing vocations and callings in the world. But I am so thankful that despite my skepticism that this would be my calling, 
Despite those moments when I think I must have misheard, despite my occasional dreams of being a stone slinger truck driver, that God has called me to be a pastor. Has God called you to be a pastor? I can't answer that for you, but I can tell you this, that if you have been called, much like I am doing right now, at some point down the road, you will begin to reflect on your time as pastor, and you will see times of challenge and pain, And you will likely, just like Jacob, have a limp from wrestling with God and the congregations you have served. But you will also realize, as overly sentimental as it may sound, that you have played a part in a remarkable love story between God and his people. That you have been invited into more holy places and holy spaces than you can even remember. And in that moment, when someone looks to you and says, Pastor, you will not look around you to see to whom that person must be speaking, but you will simply embrace it, knowing that this is who you have become. This is who you are. And you will know in that moment that you have not just shared the gospel. You have shared your very life. I will be praying for you and for your discernment on life in this ministry. Love, Pastor Jerry. Let us pray. Lord, you have called us to be church. That means that you have called us to be witnesses to your coming kingdom. And as a part of that, Lord, you have called pastors as imperfect as they always are to help to lead and to guide the church. I pray, Lord, that you would be with us as a body, that you would help us to be a kind of church, Lord, that cultivates future leaders of the church. Not because it's any better or more special, but because it's simply what we need. And in so doing, Lord, might we have more and more churches who are being shaped like you, and who are building for God's coming kingdom. It's in your name we pray. Amen.